Hey everybody, Chris Lindsay here, and you're listening to Pitch List. Join us on a deep dive into the heart of what makes writing songs and making music so magical. Let's find out what makes songwriters tick, and along the way, remember why we love music. Welcome to Pitch List. Hey everybody, my name is Chris Lindsay, and wow, this is the 61st episode of Pitch List. Our guest today is a mega hit pop writer and artist with too many iconic number ones to count. To be honest, I'd be out of my mind to be part of just one of the huge songs he's written. His career has spanned all the way from a duo formed in the 70s to his present day work in Americana with no sign of slowing down anytime soon. We had a great talk by Zoom on a cloudy Nashville afternoon. This is John Oates, and welcome to Pitch List. Good afternoon. We've got a killer version of Pitch List today. I've been excited all week thinking about talking to this guy. Master, gifted, hit songwriter, John Oates. How are you, man? Good, man. That's that's quite an intro, man. I hope I can live up to it. <laughs> I th- well, j- no, I don't want to fanboy on you, but you kind of already did. I was looking over your stats, 80 million records, best-selling duo ever, um, including now like killer crazy, the thing you're doing on your own, which is awesome, like an Americana thing. Um, you've had to, that's a dream career, man. That's unbelievable. Unbelievable. <laughs> I've been very, uh, I've been very blessed and very fortunate to, uh, to have the, the 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 amazing commercial success of, of a Hall and Oates career to allow me to do other things. And uh, it's, I think, I think uh, any creative person, uh, songwriter, musician, whatever, would uh, really um, dream to have that situation where they can go and do what they want creatively, because of this, you know, great uh, success that I've had with Daryl Hall. Yeah. And it's, um, that was, you know, that you, you, you hit the, uh, one of my first big, cause we're a songwriting podcast and, uh, you know, all of the, all of your artist stuff is driven by your songs. And I mean, you're, you're such a commercial, I mean, you, you could have got those songs cut by other artists that, that you had giant hits on. Um, do you feel like it's just, you write naturally what you like and that happened to be commercial? Did you strive to write things to be on the radio or is that just kind of, this amalgamation of what you grew up with and that's how it came out. Um, Daryl and I have always done what we, what we do naturally. We, we have a certain thing that, you know, we, we have different, we have a lot of, uh, there's a lot of commonality in, in what we like about music and the way we approach music, but there's also a lot of differences in our uh, roots and our background. You know, he came, he came from the church and uh, from an R and B kind of a street corner doo-wop harmony, uh, and he has actually has classical training as well. And then I came from a more folky blues, um, you know, kind of uh, rootsy kind of uh, place. And we really combined those two things. When we first got together, our two styles were so um, kind of different that they didn't really blend very well. And it took us a while to kind of figure out. He he kind of came toward me, I came toward him, and we learned a lot from each other. And eventually it, it coalesced into this sound. Um, we never tried to write for other people. In fact, 
I, I think it's kind of surprising over the years with the amount of songs that we've written and the amount of hits we've had that not more people have covered our songs. They, it really wasn't until the, until the sampling hip hop era when people started to actually use a lot of our, our songs. Um, I think it has to do with the way we sing and the, the, the style of our chords and the way we impose melodies over those certain chords. So it's just, uh, we do what we do and, and we never really cared about, you know, whether other, anyone else would record them. It was all about, something that we liked and something that uh, felt right to us. That's so great. We all, we, we talk about that on this podcast often about just doing what you love and having that work. Uh, another one thing about this era for you, and then we're going to get off of that. But um, I was reading the beginning of your book and you said something really interesting that you guys were not a duo. You're two individuals and none of your record. I think this is right. It said in there, none of your, uh, titles of your albums was ever Hall and Oates. It was both of y'all's name. That's right. And, and the outside world decided you guys were Hall and Oates. That's not how you approached it. Well, yeah. I mean, it's just easier to say Hall and Oates for sure. Yeah, there you uh, go. But uh, but the thing is, no, we've we actually it was a conscious decision on our part from the very beginning that we would call it, you know, we would we would be known as Daryl Hall and John Oates because we were two individuals working together. And I know that seems like we're parsing it kind of finely, you know what I mean? And maybe wow. making making a lot about nothing, but it's it's actually more than nothing for us because we always felt that we were capable of making our own music in any way that we wanted to, but we were also uh, we also knew there was a magic in working together. Yeah, uh, that, that, that's probably just all it comes down to the chemistry of you guys together. It just mm -hmm. worked and it was just beautiful. And the whole world uh, sang along, man, and still <laughs> does. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, let's go back. I'd like, like I said, we deal with, with songwriting. So I kind of want to get into and some of the things I've, I know are out there in interviews you've done. But quickly, could we go through some of your early influences to become the songwriter that you are, that, that you loved? Are there like little high points you could talk to us about? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty extensive uh, because, uh, you know, I'm kind of old and I've had a long career, but nevertheless, uh, I, I, I feel like I was very fortunate to be born at a certain time. You know, uh, I was born before rock and roll and um, I was old enough and musically sensitive enough that when rock and roll happened, I realized that something new had happened. I still I was still a little kid, but nevertheless, uh, when I grew up, uh, the first thing I heard was big band music because that was the music of my parents' uh, generation, the World War II generation, and my parents loved uh, you know all the all the classic big band stuff, you know Tommy Dorsey, Lionel Hampton, you know uh, Glenn Miller, you know you know Benny Goodman, whatever, and that's the music I heard growing up. So there was this in, in kind of you know I have this swing and big band sensibility in my head. Uh, and I, I wasn't really able to articulate that until years later, actually until just mo most very recently, really, uh, because it wasn't something I thought about. But nevertheless, as rock and roll started in the early 50s, um, you know, I, I I turned on to all the early rockers, you know, it was uh, Chuck Berry, Elvis, Little Richard, Fats Domino, um, and so on and so forth up through the 50s you know, Jerry Lee Lewis, and then in, into, uh, into the 60s when I started listening to a lot of R&B and a lot of roots music and then blues music. Uh, Philadelphia, oh, okay. I grew up outside of Philadelphia, and um, Philadelphia had a very rich musical history. It goes back, you know, Billie Holiday, mm -hmm. you know, people like Wes Montgomery. Um, and the Philadelphia Folk Festival has been going on for over 50 years. Uh, I went to the very first one. 
Uh, and at the same time, the Uptown Theater on North Broad Street was part of the uh, the Chitlin Circuit, with, you know, which was the Apollo yeah. in New York, the Howard in D.C., uh, and the Uptown in Philly. And that's that was the circuit that the uh, all the roots and R&B musicians played. So had I was I was born at this incredible, you know, fruitful moment where I could go to the Uptown Theater on Saturday night and I saw, you know, I saw Sam and Dave and Otis Redding and The Temptations and The Miracles. And I saw Stevie Wonder do fingertips when he was 12 years old. Wow. And then I could go to the Philadelphia Folk Festival and see Doc Watson and Mississippi John Hurt and Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee and Gene Ritchie and, uh, you know, uh, and so on and so forth. So, you know, being a guitar player, I was absorbing all that stuff. And, and to me, there wasn't that much difference between the two. You know, it was the essential uh, music of America that was being expressed in, in slightly different ways. But really, in the final analysis, it was all exactly the same to me. So um, I, I think that's been my mantra and my philosophy going forward is that this is, um, you know, it's it's all part of this amazing palette of American music that, uh, you know, that you can um, that you can draw from. It's been such a, an important aspect of what America has brought to the world. Absolutely, really, and and still does. Um, yeah, the mix of all of all those elements is still influences. Um, I mean, dominates the world in sound. You know, it's it's unbelievable. So here's a, here's a, here's where one way I wanted to go. Now you moved to Nashville. I remember we started seeing you around here in the early 2000s. Is that when you moved to town? That's right. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. And uh, I, you know, we would all see you at the awards and everything. And uh, I, I kind of want to talk about your move to Nashville, your writing style before, like, and then coming, you know, the Nashville style. And now you do do Nashville co-writes, right? Yeah, I've done many. Yeah, many, yeah. I made a lot of good friends in the Nashville songwriting community. Yeah, so I'd love to hear your take on that coming from the pop rock world that you came from into Nashville and their style of writing and things you like or don't like. Well, I, I started coming to Nashville to write in the late 90s. Um, mm -hmm. I, had, um, I was producing a guy named Jerry Lynn Williams in uh, Oklahoma. And Jerry Lynn uh, had, uh, had a publisher here in Nashville. And in the course of making this record with him, um, I, I met his publisher and his publisher encouraged me to come and, and write. Daryl and I weren't touring very much at the time in the late 90s. And, uh, you know, I wanted to try other things. Um, had dreams of writing a big country hit that didn't turn out so well for me. <laughs> but nevertheless. Um, so far, so far. <laughs> so far. That's right. That's right. You're always good as your next song. Right? That's right. It could be this could be the year we could see you at right. BMI's and up on stage. <laughs> true, true. Uh, but, uh, you know, I did come to Nashville and uh, and I met uh, Keith Follisay, who was one of the first Nashville writers. Okay. And Keith and I began to write together. And, uh, you know, he, uh, he 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 kind of walked me through the whole Nashville demo process where, you know, you go in the studio and cut five or six songs in a few hours. And, you know, I got to play with some of these amazing studio musicians. And one thing I noticed, you know, because prior to the late 90s coming to Nashville, the only people I played with was Daryl and our various bands. I literally never played with anyone else. So I had a thing that I did with Daryl and with our, you know, we had different bands over the years, but it was always, you know, I had a role that I played in that rhythm section. Mm -hmm. And um, all of a sudden I got to Nashville and I felt like uh, it, it brought me back to the early days of Philadelphia when I was going to the Philadelphia Folk Festival and, and going to the second fret, the coffee houses and seeing all these amazing performers. And I, I just got very turned on by uh, the quality of the musicianship 
the, the high level of, of, of the players and their professionalism. And I said, man, I, I got to be here. And little by little, we started coming more often and eventually we got a place here and, you know, yeah. made, made, got, got in, it got involved very early on with uh, Jed Hilly and the Americana community. Right. I felt like I felt like it was a place where I could find a home, musical home, uh, because it was open ended. You know, there was lots of styles that could live inside that, yeah. that category of Americana. Yeah, a lot less rules in Americana. Yeah. yeah, a lot of a lot of even country stuff will spill into Americana if it's a little different. You know, it seems like now things are better than ever. It seems now that people are all over the place and everybody's loving it, and we're losing some of these genre chains that we've had forever you know yeah i mean it's it's uh you know everyone is more open-minded and the internet and the virtual uh way of dis distributing music now has has uh, really allowed everyone to be much more open-minded about about music and styles and things i mean look at contemporary country i mean i don't know it, it might as well be pop music for all i guess it, exactly with a steel yeah, guitar i don't hear any difference yeah. really no well there isn't it's just the different instruments really so occasionally there's a different instrument. Sometimes they're not even different instruments. Yeah, this is true. Uh, but regardless of that fact, it's uh, it's just about good songs. Yeah. It's about good songs and making good records. And really, I, I don't care what label you put on it, man. It's just uh, it's all about good, writing good songs. Yeah, and it seems like I I try to tell my kids this because they're starting their writing stuff and everything. It doesn't really matter. It, it's just make it great and people will come. They'll come listen to it. You just make yep. it great and people, it does, and they'll figure out what category to put it in, what to call it, all that. It's, you really have to start from the place of make something great. And then mm -hmm. the, all that gets figured out. Done. You don't great. have to worry about that. Um, yeah. Something caught my eye in, in maybe your book or some press. You guys are serious guys, man. Somebody had interviewed you and talked about, and this was, about the 70s and 80s where there was a lot of drugs around right and you made this comment that you guys were never into that you didn't have time for that and it, that impressed me because i think sometimes in our business people think this is you know what partying goes along with this business you know and and uh i think it's really important for younger writers to know that that's a road to doom you know and i love to see people talking about that about you know i don't want to get into just say no to the drugs kids but uh, it struck me that that you were forceful about it. Do you want to comment on that? Um, you know, I I've I've been very lucky that I just never needed it. Um, you know, who, look who not, who among us has not dabbled in some in some course. way or another? You know, yes. Uh, and and of course, you know, growing up in the '60s and '70s, you know, it was everywhere. Yep. And I you know, and I saw a lot of really talented people fall by the wayside because of of drugs and drinking yep. and stuff like that. Um, so, I, you know, my constitution doesn't uh, doesn't like it. And so I've rolled with it. And the other thing is, regard, you know, even above and beyond all that, um, Darren and I always had our eye on the ball. We were we the decisions we made were always predicated on what will allow us to keep making music, not not what will allow us to make more money, not what will allow us to make more hits. We thought if we can keep making music, then our lives will be, you know, we'll have good lives, complete lives, because we were both musicians from a very early age. So that was the decisions we made. And, you know, if there was something that would get in the way and would be a roadblock to that, like addiction or, mm -hmm. you know, uh, so, you know, just heading off in the wrong direction, um, then it wasn't something we were very interested in. And uh, we worked too hard. You know, we were... Uh, I'm a very I'm I'm a big uh, fan of uh, being a professional. You know, I 
And right. that's another thing I love about Nashville, the professionalism on across the board, you know, the yep. musicians, the engineers, the producers, the guys who cart the cartage guys who take care of the amplifiers, people who fix instruments. Everybody is super professional. And I love that about Nashville. Yeah. And that is very well said. I should have approached it from that angle, the professional angle and, uh, um, well said, because it's a, it's a business like any other business and, you have to be serious. And, you know, I've had people in my life who were so talented. You know what I mean? Yeah. So talented that just, man. Yeah. Um, sorry about that little dark detour. It's, it's yeah. a reality that we've all gone through. Yeah. If, you're, if you're in the music business, you're going to you're going to deal with it or come across it or, right. you know, have to overcome it one or the other. Yeah. Now, do you do you have sort of a dual life? with your duo and with you by yourself or you do you swap touring or how does that work for you well over the last last four or five years i was doing double duty i'd go out with daryl we'd do some big tours mm -hmm. play big arenas and, and big venues and then i'd come back to nashville and go out with my good road band uh and we'd play clubs and small theaters um and i was doing it back to back it, it quite frankly it wore me out uh, i i loved it so much that i didn't want to stop but boy right. it was tough um, you know, I never really stopped. In fact, this year is the first year in my entire professional life where I've been home for a full year. And it's it really it was a whole adjustment period, uh, which really. I, oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, it's kind of funny. I had this symbolic re re reality hit me when because I always keep a bag packed. Um, it's it's like a thing. You know, I've got this backpack that's got the essentials for what I need. And I could literally grab that bag next to my bed, go to the airport, and I'm gone. Wow. And I'm okay. Your go bag. You got to go, yeah, bag. go bag. And, you know, after about two or three months at home during this COVID thing, I remember the morning I woke up and, and the reality hit me. I went, you know what? I ain't going nowhere. Wow. <laughs> and I took the bag and I emptied it out. And that okay. was like a, it was like a cathartic, you know, kind of, um, purging of, of sorts, you know? So, uh, you know, and then, then I settled into it. I started writing. I got involved with a lot of projects that I couldn't have gotten involved in had I been on the road. Mm -hmm. I did a movie, a bunch of four or five songs for a movie. Uh, and, uh, you know, things that probably wouldn't have happened had I not been home. Yeah. It's been, uh, it's been a crazy year. So yeah. Th yeah. The amount of traveling you do, I can see that you're just sort of used to that rhythm of being home for a while and then going. Yeah. Absolutely. And then, uh, I guess that would be an adjustment. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, here's a question for you. Now, when you write, do you do a lot of solo writing or is it more co-writing or do you balance? How do you do that? It's whatever happens, happens. Um, I mean, if we set up a co-write with someone, uh, you know, then, then, then I go in there and, and enjoy the, the experience and the process. Mm -hmm. Uh, but if I'm home and I come up with an idea, I, you know, if it's happening, man, I'm, I'm, I'll take it as far as I can take it. Yep. If I run up against a brick wall, uh, you know, I'll always look to someone, hey, man, check this out. I got this idea. Can't bring it home. You know, what, what do you got? Um, but at the same time, I just wrote a song just recently for our song festival because I got so inspired by all the all the great videos that and music that the uh, various artists were turning in. Um, I got so inspired. I said, man, I got to write something new. And um a good friend of uh, a guy I know in Woody Creek, Colorado, a guy named Joe Henry, not the country Joe Henry. There's another Joe Henry. Yep. Um, who's written songs for John Denver. Frank yeah, Sinatra. I know the name. I know the yeah. name. I know who you're talking about. He's, he's really a, an author and a poet and a lyricist. He's not not actually, you know, he doesn't play any instruments. Um, he and I have lived uh, near each other for 25 years. 
and we've always used to see each other, um, but we never got a chance to write. And this past summer, I got together with him and and he said, man, I've been waiting to write with you for 25 years. And I said, yeah, same with me. And he had this great idea for a song, uh, a title and a, and a concept. And I, we tried to write it and it didn't really come out to come together very well, but I liked the, I liked the idea and I kind of put it aside. And then when the, just within the last month or so, I wanted to, you know, I thought, man, hey, what about that idea that Joe Henry had? And I went and dug it out of my my little files and uh, I opened it up and it, it became a new song. The, 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 the bones were there, but it became mm-hmm. a new song. And um, I'm really proud of it. It's called Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee. And it it's the last song in our song fest uh, that's coming out on March 20th. So, uh, and I went into the studio here in Berry Hill where I would do my work, Addiction Sound, and uh, pulled together some of the guys I play with all the time. And we cut a cool track on it. And uh, yeah, really proud of it. That's awesome. I love, uh, I love the idea too. I think it's so valuable sometimes to just sit things up. Like yeah. if you've got a song, I was just working on something today um, that you like parts of it, but there's one thing that's not working right. It's a great idea. Just sit it up for a couple of weeks, walk mm-hmm. away, even a month, two months. And then when you yeah. come back, you'll have a kind of a, a fresh look at it and you can often solve, solve True. the issues. I think it's really True. good uh, technique. Yeah. Um, so do you always have songs rolling? Or you got a, a lots of songs and different points of uh, going on? <laughs> different parts of my brain all the oh, time. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm always thinking of stuff, you know. Yeah. Always, something's always happening, you know, just plunking around. I like to pick up different instruments. Uh, every instrument just seems to speak in a different way, you know. Um, I'll, I'll try different tunings on my guitars. Um, that's always inspiring. Um, or I'll I'll try to noodle around on a, on a keyboard. I'm not much of a piano player, but I can play a little bit. And, you know, or I'll take a dulcimer or, mm-hmm. you know, do something, you know, you know, outside the box. And that always brings an idea. Uh, and then, you know, it's funny. A lot of times I'll, I'll start something in an unusual tuning. And after I get done with it, I realize I could have played it on <laughs> in regular normal tuning. But but I might not have thought of it because of that fact. Yeah. And it also it it it, it knocks you out of the regular groove in your brain. You know yeah. what I mean? It puts you in that other, I think that's also a gr- another great writing tip. Pick up an instrument you're not familiar with, do a different tuning, uh, yeah. effects, uh, guitar pedals, um, that's right. anything like that will make it. It's like, I used to call them um, musical marital aids, you know, because <laughs> it's just something to jar you loose, you know, so, sure. to where you just put you in that sort of fresh when you were yeah. 18, you know, and it, it just yeah. hits you like magic. Um, we used to do it at our studio when we co-write, I had a big PA that I would fire up and just, we'd write songs and just blast it, you know, with <laughs> loops, like you're at a concert and it really fired people up, you know? Um, I think that's another great songwriting note. Yeah. Was it, Hey, listen, as far as songwriting goes, there's no rules, whatever no. it takes to get you there. Absolutely. Right. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more John Oates. Absolutely right. Well, I do have, I want to make sure we talk about this because I know by the time this airs, I think we'll be closer to, it'll be close to Saturday the 20th. Yes. And that you're doing Oats Fest and I want to talk to you about it because it seems really cool. Can you, can you tell us about that? Sure. Absolutely. I can tell you a lot about it. Awesome. (laughs) It started, um, you know, it started in the early 2000s. Uh, When I first came to Nashville, of course, I, I, you know, one of the 
early things I started doing was doing songwriters in the round at the Bluebird and things like that. And just really getting to know a lot of the great songwriters in town and really being impressed with how, how much talent there was. And, uh, you know, we still had our house in Colorado. We still do. And went back to Colorado and I thought, you know, uh, the town of Aspen had never seen a, a songwriter in the round type show. So we put together this show called that we call the Aspen Songwriters Festival. And we called it 7908 because that's the altitude of Aspen. And um, we put it together for three years and had amazing artists. We had we had Alan Toussaint, we had Keb Moe, Matt Nathanson, Donovan Frankenreiter, Sean Colvin, uh, Jim Lauderdale, um, you know, oh man, just so many people. Anyway, the list goes on. Uh, And we had a really great experience doing that. And it kind of fell by the wayside. And then this past summer, we were out there again. And uh, the mayor of the town, who used to be my roadie, believe it or not. Wow. Yeah. All world. Uh, He he and I, we we, we met up and uh, he said, you know, you should, you know, maybe you want to revive the song festival. And I said, yeah, you think we can do it? He said, yeah, maybe in the spring we could do a live show. And as the as the year progressed, we realized that wasn't going to happen. And my wife and I said, let's do it virtually. Let's uh, let's see if we can put a virtual song festival together. And we also at the same time, we're realizing how the this uh, horrible situation in America where you know, one in six families can't put food on the table. And we we were very moved uh, to say, I wish we could do more. And then we said, let's see if we can combine a, a charity and a donation for to help feed America with this song festival idea. And we reached out to feedingamerica.org and they were on board and great organization. Um, then we began, it began to take on a life of its own, uh, reached out to some good friends and uh, they signed on. And once they signed on, more and more musicians started to sign on and it just got, it really took on a life of its own. And now we have the most amazing lineup of artists. I mean, I, I can read them off to you if you want, but. Uh, yes, yeah, tell us some. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, you know, I reached out to a lot of the people that were at the Aspen Songwriters Festival, Mm -hmm. Kevin Moe, Matt Nathanson, Sean Colvin, Jim Lauderdale. Um, But then, you know, it was Michael McDonald, who Daryl and I toured with, uh, Darius Rucker. Yeah. um, She, uh, Dave Grohl. And of course, Daryl's doing one of his cool solo songs, I'm in a Philly Mood. I reached out to Dan and Shay, who are two guys who I just love. And mm-hmm. I've been watching them and, and I got to know them over the years because we were on the same label at Warner Nashville and just love what they've been doing and how big they've gotten in the, in, in the pop country world. Uh, so Dan and Shay signed on. Uh, we got Sheila E. She's doing this incredible version of Glamorous Life that's mind-blowing. Wow. Uh, as I said, Keb Mo, Sean Colvin, Sammy Hagar in the circle, uh, Big Kenny, who's my neighbor, lives right down the road. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, Sarah Bareilles, who all-time mm-hmm. favorite, amazing. Uh, Bob Weir and Wolf Brothers, wow. who I got to play with a year and a half ago at, at the Ryman. Um, Melina Moy, Kevin Cronin, Gavin DeGraw, uh, a great group out of that lives in Franklin called Lewis York. I don't know if you know these guys. I don't. I have to write they're, that they're, down. They're new to the Nashville area, but they're incredible. Um, and we, we, you know, we have Michael Franti um, mm-hmm. and Lyle Lovett just uh, actually last week called me up and said, hey, John, is it too late to get a song on your show? And I said, not for you, man. That's uh, awesome. I haven't so heard. Yeah, heard the lineup that's is great. It's phenomenal. Yeah, that- that is amazing. So how does it, um, is it going to be, do you, will they be able to Google this and get a link to get in or do you buy no, tickets or it, how does it work? Well, here's the cool thing about it. My wife and I wanted to make sure that everyone could ha- could enjoy this and hopefully donate. So it's absolutely free. 
It is wow. not pay-per-view. Awesome. It's, it's on nugs.tv or nugs.net, uh, nugs.net or nugs.tv. And um, we'll have a donation component with a QR code and we'll have a, you know, URL feedingamerica.org slash oatsfest. And all you've got to do on March 20th at 7 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Eastern, uh, go on nugs.net and you will see the show. You can uh, sit back and uh, crank the speakers up and enjoy some incredible performances. And at the same time, you can donate to feedingamerica.org. And it's as simple as that. We really wanted to make it all inclusive. Um, wanted to have a lot of diversity. You know, it's funny after we we organized this thing and we started getting all these amazing music, uh, videos, I, I realized that you know it's kind of a micro. This the 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 song list is a is kind of it would be my playlist. It's like all the music I like. There's pop. Mm-hmm. There's rock. There's R and B. There's Americana. There's folk. There's country. Uh, there's blues. Uh, so. You know, I just, um, I guess in a way, you know, I've kind of um, like a moth to the flame, you know, we, we provided a a platform for these artists to not only do something great for Feeding America, but to showcase what they do best, write songs and sing and play. It's fantastic, man. It's such a great thing. And I'm glad you're doing it. I know, uh, I'm sure you would have rather been in Aspen, but that'll come again. That probably not next year, you'll be able to do that. You know what? I think maybe this virtual festival might actually open the door to uh, to doing this type of show in other places. It might be Aspen. It might be, who knows, Chicago, yeah. L.A. We never know. Well, and I think it's also so great you're doing it. Much needed. I read an article that I trusted a couple of days ago about food insecurity. Yeah. There are a lot of people, a shocking amount of people that are living. It's hard you know, to believe. Yes, it is. Yeah. It's hard to believe that in America, right. that people are going without food. I, I, that's the thing I couldn't process. And that was really the, the thing that, that kicked me in the butt to, to try to do something. Yeah. Uh, one in six families can't put food on the table. That's, right. that's a crazy number. And you know, just by donating $1 to a feedingamerica.org, we'll, we'll create 10 meals. $1 creates 10 meals. That's, that's, pretty, that's pretty good value for the money. Yes, uh, it is. Yes, know, it is. So, and, and a lot of those are children you know, yeah. who are, yeah. are going hungry and there's just, you know, there ain't no call for that in no. this country. You know what I mean? We need to do something. So we will also uh, put a link for all this in our show notes. So if anybody Thank wants you. to yeah, go straight and donate, that would be amazing. Anything they yeah. could do. And also for, for the show too, cause it'll be fantastic. Um, one thing I do want to talk before I let you go, we always talk about this on the podcast. It's one of my favorite things. <clears throat> you may not have this, because it looks like you started out and just kind of had a rocket to success. But we love to talk about people's careers in the beginning before they make it. Uh, was there a moment where you really thought, damn, this just isn't going to work and you might've wanted to give up or, or were you always just like, I'm, I'm going full blast. I mean, sink or swim. Um, did you have, have you, did you have a moment when you were younger before y'all broke that you, that you worried about it? Well, you know, I've been fortunate to be able to make a living, you know, really in in music my whole life. You know, I I played in a band from time I was in sixth grade. Um, I I taught guitar lessons to get myself through college uh, and then met Daryl. And Daryl and I had about two years where we wrote and we kept trying to play in little venues around Philadelphia and we weren't getting much traction. It took us quite a while, but we finally got a contract with Atlantic Records, Mm -hmm. thanks to the fact that Arif Martin wanted to produce us. 
great, one of the world's great producers. So we were very fortunate. And then we made three albums and we didn't have any success. Uh, we had, Really? Uh, no, I didn't yeah. know this. Okay, sure, talk made, about we that. Made, well, in 1972, we did Whole Oats. In 73, we did A Band of Luncheonette. And in 74, uh, 74 we did War Babies. Um, and they really weren't that successful. We got, you know, it put us on the map, but it didn't really happen. And it wasn't until our fourth album where we went to L.A. and recorded uh, and we had Sarah Smile and Rich Girl and, and then mm -hmm. they re-released She's Gone and that became a hit as well. So it took about four years before we really had the, the commercial success. And then throughout the 70s, our career was kind of up and down. You know, mm -hmm. we had we had the big hits. And then in the late 70s, we kind of kind of sagged down into this kind of, you know, we weren't having big hits, but we were still working. And then in the 80s, we decided, we finally decided to produce ourselves and go into the studio with our road band. And that's what changed everything. And then we had, of course, this, you know, crazy 80s uh, string of, of hits. Uh, but that's right. You know, in the end, man, we just wanted to, you know what I'm most proud of in terms tell, of tell us so everyone, everyone always focuses on our big hits. You know, it's the thing that it's kind of the 300 pound gorilla in the room, you know, you yeah. can't get away from them, uh, which is great, but uh, not one of our big hits sounds like the other one, not one. And I, I, I'm very proud of that fact. We've never done part two of, you know, like Sarah smile doesn't sound like a rich girl. doesn't sound like she's gone. Man eater doesn't sound like you make my dreams come true or I can't go for that or out of touch doesn't sound like, you know, any of those songs. So um, it's really a testament to uh, the way we wrote and uh, the fact that we never wanted to, you know, kind of stand on our laurels. We always wanted to push forward. I love that. And it's true. I hadn't thought of it that way. They are all very unique. And you would think there would be a tendency to sort of stay in a vein but i also think the fact that you didn't made them even bigger because they're their own unique little gems you know what i mean and it kind of gave them room to shine because they weren't they were all different you know well yeah but make no mistake about it the world at large uh, meaning uh, radio and uh and big record companies they wanted us to do rich girl too and they wanted right. to do sarah smile too uh there was no doubt about it but we we were we wouldn't do it you know we just we wrote the songs we wrote and you know we said here you go here you go guys we made the record now you go figure out a way of selling it did you guys get in some of those meetings where they're telling you to do a sarah smile follow-up and you're like well we're doing what we're doing and did it ever uh, get heated? Did you? Luckily, no. Luckily, we had a pretty strong manager who kind of isolated us from all that crap. Um, but he knew we weren't going to do it anyway, so it didn't matter. <laughs> well, that's good. There's a, there's another tip for you, kids. Get a good manager who can uh, bad cop for you. Mm -hmm. Here's something that came to mind when you were talking. Some of those iconic songs that you're talking about, Man Eater. I don't know if you said that one, but that one too. When you had written it, maybe before you recorded it, but but it wasn't out. Did you know which ones were going to be giant hits or were you surprised? No, we really didn't. We, we had a sense, you know, you know, we, we knew certain songs just seemed to rise. You know, we could tell from the, from the recording studio. Really? We could tell that when we were in the studio, the tracks just had a certain, certain tracks, just the cream always rises to the top. Uh, mm -hmm. But I, I will say that we, we spent as much time and energy on every album track we didn't we didn't spend more time on a song like you make my dreams come true than we did on one of the other album tracks it just so happens that that song had a magic that you know lifted it above the rest of them uh but but we just um you know man eater <laughs> i came back from jamaica and i wanted to write a reggae song and i wrote the hook 
you know, oh, here she comes as a reggae song. Wow. And um, I was working with Edgar Winter at the time. I was writing with him. Frankenstein. And I actually, I was with him and I said, hey, man, I got this idea. I don't know if you're going to like it. And I played him this reggae version of Maneater, just the, the hook. And uh, he, he didn't really, he said, yeah, it's all right. I don't know. I said, <laughs> okay, well, no problem. And I put, you know, put it away and I went back and then I played it for Daryl. And he said, man, I like the idea. He goes, but he goes, I don't want to do a reggae song. He goes, well, let's do something more, more of a Motown feel. Mm-hmm. And he came up with the idea of going, bonk, gong, gong, bonk, bonk, yep. And that became the, the vibe, the hook or, or the instrumental hook. Uh, and then we we continued to write the song and we we wrote it around that with that approach, which was much more rather than reggae it was probably more in keeping with, you know, where we were coming from as a, as a group. That's crazy. I've heard that type of story before from some big pop songs that were one thing and then another. And then it just well, that's the beauty of working together is like you get that influence of someone else. Um, and who knows if, if Edgar Winter had worked on that with you, maybe it doesn't do anything. That's right. Might have been a Texas blues. Right. Um, But uh, but I'll tell you what, I like to give you a little scoop right here because please, um, please. I'm working with a a very cool artist named Sack Squatch on the song festival. Mm -hmm. He's my he's my co-host and he's a seven foot Sack Squatch wearing saxophone player. (laughs) And and he and I have been collaborating and we did uh, we did an EDM version of Maneater. You're kidding. And it's awesome. And it's going to debut for the first time on the song festival on Saturday night. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Did you speed it up or how did you do it? Well, I I don't want to give it to you. We don't want to say, okay. But it's it's an electronic dance music version of Maneater. Let's just leave it at that and uh, let your imagination run wild. By a seven foot sax playing Sasquatch. And me. (laughs) And you. (laughs) I always end up, I always end up partnering with the tall people. (laughs) You said one, and I you you tell me when you need to go. But I had another question that came up. Did you guys? So you went out to LA to record, and those were some of the sessions that really started to work for you as far as on the radio. Yeah. Do you feel like did going out there? Did you move out there too, or did you just record out there? Well, we we sort of temporarily moved out there because right. we didn't live anywhere in those days. You know, mm-hmm. we if we we wrote, we recorded, and we toured, and so when we came off the road. What happened was we had a guy in our band named Christopher Bond. He was from Philadelphia. He was in one of our early, early bands in the early 70s. And after we did the Abandoned Luncheonette album together, he moved to L.A. Uh, he didn't want to be on the road. He wanted to be a producer. And, and um, we stayed in touch. And uh, over the over the next year or so, he kept saying, hey, man, we I've got the great studios. I've got the great studio musicians. You guys really need to come out here and make a record. And we were we didn't really want to go to L.A. We were not oriented toward L.A. Um, but we, as I said earlier, we did three albums in New York and it, nothing happened. So mm-hmm. we, we didn't really have anything to lose. So we said, hey, let's take a leap of faith and give this a try. So we went out to L.A. and um, he did. He surrounded us with some of the great, great L.A. players. You know, we had Lee Sklar and Ed Green and, um, you know, uh, Jeff Percaro and okay. so many amazing players. Uh, playing on the records and and the studios in LA in the mid 70s were really state of the art oh yeah some of the best studios in America Um, so you know it was kind of fun to be out there we'd we'd rent a house we'd hang uh, make our record and then we'd go on tour and then after the tour is over we'd go back to LA and rent another house and 
hang out there, make another record. And, you know, we'd go to the Troubadour and hang out with, you know, with the Eagles and Linda Ronstadt and Jackson Brown and J.D. Souther and those guys. And, uh, you know, we were part of that that 70s thing that was happening. But it wasn't what we were doing. We we did our own thing, but we were, you know, it was just great to be in, in a really creative environment. Yeah, and probably a great change. Um, I grew up in Texas, but I lived out in L.A. when I was younger for a while. And it's you being an East Coast guy. It's just such a cool change to go somewhere like that if you never lived yeah. there where it's, everything's different. You know, it's weather's beautiful. It's dry, you know, Um I, th- I would just, it just kind of hit me that maybe that was the perfect move for you guys to be out there in a different situation. And then plus you're putting uh, those players, Picaro, man, that guy was an incredible drummer, you know? Uh, there's so many great players. We had, they're so, yeah, you know, to play with them. I mean, you know, on our, and then along the Red Ledge in 1977, I think it was, we, we had George Harrison playing on that. He was living out there wow. at the time and we were hanging out and, I asked him if he would play on our record and, you know, George was so cool. He said, yeah, he goes, I just want to be in the band. He goes, I don't want to do anything special. I just want to be in the band. I, I said, Hey man, you can do whatever you want. Just, <laughs> yeah. just show up. You're George and Harrison. You get to do what you want. He spent the whole day playing acoustic guitar. He played wow. rhythm guitar and he had a blast, you know? And uh, so, you know, it was just a, uh, it was really a, a great experience, but by the end, by, by 77, we had worn out our welcome in LA and we were anxious to get back to New York and mm-hmm. we were tired. And, and actually we wanted to start making records with our road band. And okay. that's when we developed the band that we used during the eighties with GE Smith, Mickey Curry. Oh, that's right. T-Bone Wolk. When we, and Charlie DeShant, when we developed that band and we could go in the studio and produce ourselves, that's when everything changed. Uh, that's when we had all, all this tremendous amount of, of well, we'll talk about that. Why, what, why did everything change? Do you feel like you had more creative control on the ultimate sound of the record or it, it was a natural evolution of working with, you know, the old paradigm in the record business, when you were, when you're an artist starting out was you had to be put into the hands of a producer who right. could, who, who basically, whether they, you know, guided you musically or not, they were beholding to the record company to make sure you didn't spend too much money and, you know, you're going to have a hit and all, you know, it was the old, the old rules, you know, so to speak. And, but we, we were fortunate to work with Arif Martin. Then we did a record with Todd Rundgren. And then, then uh, we did two, three records with Krista Bond. And then we worked with David Foster and David Foster. We were the first artist that David Foster ever produced. Wow. And uh, he was brand new out in LA and, we knew he was an incredible musician, an amazing piano player. And we worked with him uh, for two albums. And by the end of the second album that we were working on, he even said to us, he goes, why, why am I even here? You guys are making this record yourself. And we had evolved to that point where we okay. knew the next step was that we were going to just produce ourselves. So that's really what happened. It was a natural evolution. And we had so much, you know, we, we had our studio chops down. We had been in the studio for years and years and years. Uh, and we were ready to take on, take, take it over and, and be responsible for, uh, you know, for our own music. Yeah. And what's interesting is that has been done before and not worked, but it yeah. worked for you guys. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's really, it really shot you into, you went into a whole another level of your career then in the eighties. So yeah, all we needed was a great engineer and we did, right. we, had, we had great engineers, Neil Kernan, you know, and um, just so many great engineers. Right. Besides engineering, I think the producer's main job is just make sure somebody's cutting a hit record, you know. 
Well, I learned, I learned, I learned most of my producing chops from uh, Arif Martin in the early seventies, mm -hmm. one of the great, greatest producers of all times. And one of the great gentlemen in the, in the music business. And I watched what he did in the studio and how he, how he ran his sessions. And to be honest with you here in Nashville, when I'm producing a track, I run my sessions exactly the way he ran our Atlantic sessions back in the early seventies. You know, he produced his, his most recent stuff before he passed away was Nora Jones. Okay. Uh, oh, all right, all right. Okay. He produced yeah. Chaka Khan. He produced Aretha Franklin. He produced, he, oh, produced right. the first, he produced the first John Prine album. Um, in fact, John, John, John Prine and me and Daryl were in the studio at the same time in the same studio. We were doing our second album and John was doing his first album. Um, wow. So, he, he produced Bette Midler, The Divine Miss M, Bette's mm -hmm. first album. Um, he produced uh, Solomon Burke. Uh, he produced The Young Rascals. You know, so he was he was just an amazing, he could do anything, any kind of music. It didn't matter. Uh, he just, he treated it as pure music. He didn't care what the style was. And here again, I learned so much from him and, and you know, how he how he handled the studio musicians, how he, he handpicked the players picking the right player for the right song at the right moment. And that's a, that's a thing that I carry over to Nashville. Um, and I tell people all the time, uh, I think Vince Gill told me that, you know, when you're in Nashville, it's, and you're producing a record, it's like being the director of a movie. Mm -hmm. You, you cast the players. Yes. Yet, you know, cause Lord knows there's a, so many great guitar players, so many sure. great bass players, drummers, whatever. Um, so, but it's just, who's going to be that exact right player for that exact right moment. And uh, that's the that's the luxury that we have here in Nashville uh, to be able to draw from. And uh, I just love the idea. And I come up with a song and I go, oh, man, you know, I know I know exactly who I want on guitar on this one. I know exactly who should be right. playing blues on this one. And, uh, you know, it's just a, a beautiful uh, thing to be able to have that uh, that talent at your fingertips. It really is. And I think Nashville is spoiled that way because it doesn't. L.A. has a good player scene still. But Nashville has the most robust. I mean, there are so many great players here. I mean, so many. Yeah. Um, but a great record. I think you're absolutely right, man. A casting is a good way to good way to look yeah. at it. Yeah. Because there's there's guys who can take that. There's two or three guitar players more than that that could play a record and it's going to work, right? Sure. But there's that one person who's just going to be the one little thing. That's right. And there's chemistry too. It's not just one. I was talking to my buddy Bukovac about it. It's not just the one person. It's how everybody works together, you know, as, as a unit and that chemistry too. Um, I'm going to look into him. I, I do know who you're talking about now, but I'm going to go back and read. Awesome, man. Well, I don't want to take up any more of your time. I could literally hear these stories forever. Um, but I know you, uh, I've tried to be respectful. I know you've told these stories a lot and, um, wanted to keep it on the songwriting lines what's up tell us what's what's i know you're uh you guys are working on um on oats fest but further out what's what are your plans for the next few years what are uh what, well what's, you know um i just obviously i want to stay active musically but um i want to spread my wings and try some different things this uh writing writing uh, songs for this recent movie called gringa was really a great experience for me because the songwriting came much easier when i had a script in front of me I really, it gave me a starting point. You know, it wasn't like I was start trying to come up with a song in a, in a void, you know, just, you know, coming, kind of coming up with an idea from nothing. Um, you know, I had the script in front of me. It was evocative. The writing was great in the, in the script. 
And I, I picked certain, you know, phrases and certain moments out and it really just spurred my, my uh, juices, got my juices going. So that was fun. I'll, I'd love to do that again. Um, I think there's going to be more song festivals in our future. And mm-hmm. Daryl and I have a tour plan for August of this year. Oh, uh, fantastic. We got, yeah. We got a 25 city tour. Um, we don't know if it's going to happen. We, we want it to happen and uh, we're going to do everything in our power to make it happen. Uh, I guess the world will dictate to us whether um, they want to sit in a venue and listen to music live. And that that's, did you say August for that one? Yeah. Early August, um, early August 20, yeah. 25 cities. And we're going to be, uh, we're going to, we're touring with KT Tunstall and, and squeeze. Wow. I haven't heard, I hadn't heard that name and I used to love, I still do squeeze, squeeze and, and they an are incredible fantastic. band. We did a couple shows with them and uh, they, they sound amazing. And, uh, yeah. And Katie Tunstall is one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, surely no, I'm a knock wood, but that's seeming more reasonable these days. Knock wood. Well, <laughs> right now it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, man, uh, thank you so much, John, for yeah, being on you. our podcast. Uh, All right, appreciate it. I really, really, I think uh, our listeners are really going to get a kick out of talking to you. Uh, so thank you again. This is the great John Oates on Pitch List. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pitch List, produced in partnership with the American Songwriter Podcast Network. John and his wife, Amy, have partnered with FeedingAmerica.org to produce Oats Fest 7908. It's scheduled for March 20th, and he's got some amazing guests. To watch, you can find it streaming on Nugs TV. That's it, Nugs TV. Just look it up on the Googles. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or your preferred listening platform. And if you want, feel free to leave us a five-star rating and review. For exclusive content from this week's guest and more, you can visit our website at pitchlistpodcast.com or follow our social media pages on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. To hear songs written and or recorded by today's guest, check out this week's playlist by finding us on Spotify at Pitch List Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.